0: I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Amy Aronson, author of the new book, Crystal Eastman, A Revolutionary Life. And if you haven't heard of Crystal Eastman, you're probably not alone. She was one of the most progressive feminists of the early 20th century, and she was also branded the most dangerous woman in America. Crystal Eastman was an uncompromising feminist. She was also an early advocate for workers' rights and a self-branded socialist and an anti-militarist. But two other important facts about Crystal Eastman's life. She helped to write the Equal Rights Amendment. Crystal Eastman was also the co-founder of the ACLU. So one of my very first questions about Crystal Eastman's life is why she faded from history. and Why there's so little information about her. So here is author Amy Aronson explaining why she thinks that is. I think
1: the main reason that Crystal Eastman has kind of disappeared from or is obscure in the historical record is because of what really was kind of intersectional mindset, an intersectional outlook in her activism. What I mean by that is that Eastman involved herself in, you know, multiple movements and, you know, many of the major social movements of the 20th century and believed that they were all linked together. And worked throughout her career to try to link them together, all under one kind of vast emancipatory rubric. She she believed and she she recognized that there you know th- there were there were commonalities among various forms of oppression and she she tried to kind of straddle multiple movements and bring them together in order to combat you know all of those common sources of oppression and inequality at once so she spent a lot of her time you know talking about socialism and anti-imperialism and also you know maternity and maternalism with feminists um, she spent a lot of time talking about feminism and pacifism with socialists and with revolutionaries And one of the outcomes of this was that Eastman always seemed to be kind of straddling so many different movements at once that her voice often you know seemed insurgent or challenging from within each individual movement um, many of her colleagues felt that they weren't sure where she stood because she was trying to straddle um, so many different movements at once because when she talked to say feminists about socialism it seemed like a challenge from within and so this kind of complicated her status and her stature with within the the movements that she was uh, affiliated with, within the movements that that she... She built her life on. Um, at the same time as her radicalism and her activism challenged her kind of standing in the more mainstream political and social environments. Right, she was a radical, so she was already challenging to uh, more mainstream views. But because of that, she you know she needed stronger a stronger sense of belonging. I think clearer sense of standing within the the protest movements, the leftist movements that she collectively saw as her political home. And so what happened was she, you know, kind of fell through the planks of history. She fell through the planks of historical memory. She didn't have clear and consistent connections with organizations. Um, with a single organization, right, or a single cause. She didn't have clear and consistent alliances or relationships to various mentors who were recognized. The things that that signal stature and make someone intelligible and make someone visible in historical memory, she kind of challenged and complicated at every turn, and precisely because she you know, tried to connect them all to a larger vision of change that they all shared. Um and so in some ways it was a you know a kind of a, a I think a tragic irony that her her inclusive vision seemed to divide people and seemed to divide people's loyalties but in other ways it's also a kind of a fascinating story of how we tell stories how and why we remember people that I think you know, has a lot to tell us about our current intersectional environment for forming coalitions to pursue the same social change that she and others have been pursuing for a century, you know, and counting.
0: So is it oversimplistic to say that she was possibly a victim of her own prolificity? She was so prolific and involved in so many movements that she wasn't known for a single thing, or was it that and maybe some hostility because she was seen as kind of an insurgent in lots of these movements?
1: I wouldn't say hostility. But I would say that, you know, she challenged people, she challenged organizational hierarchies and and leadership, you know, in various organizations. And so there were some leaders, um, she had, you know, quite a run in with Alice Paul, for example, uh, particularly after the vote was won, when the militant wing of the women's movement, the National Women's Party, um, was starting to figure out, okay, what comes next? Um, it was in that period, you know, before the rise of the Equal Rights Amendment in 1923 and that they were, you know, searching for, OK, what's our next approach? And Eastman wanted a very intersectional, kind of transnational feminist movement. And Paul wanted a much more focused, targeted women's campaign, just m- much like the, you know, the, the suffrage uh, movement that they had just successfully completed. So for some leaders, there was that, you know, that sense that they were being challenged from a colleague. Um, for others, it was the fact that her kind of intersectional perspective, um, as well as her movement to the left after the Russian Revolution, seemed too radical you know, and, and seemed to push the organizations that she was associated with in more radical directions than many of the progressive leaders in those organizations were comfortable.
0: Yeah. With. Wow. That's unfortunate. You know, she reminds me of just reading her story and, you know, kind of the, the emotionality of it and the arc of her life. She reminds me of not Elizabeth Rankin, but there, I, I can't believe I can't remember her name. The very first woman who ran for, for president who was uh, called oh, Victoria Sa- Woodhull. <laughs> yeah, yes. Mrs. She was Satan. awesome. Yes.
1: <laughs> she scared the crap out of people, yes, Victoria Woodall. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know,
0: just something about her demeanor, and it's hard to tell from a book, you know, but just something about it just kind of reminds me of that, you know, a similar kind of radical woman, a radical feminist yes. around that time.
1: You know, Crystal was just unafraid. Um, she was so bold and she she asserted her freedom. She really, you know, she she claimed a freedom um, and claimed a world that even while she was trying to create it. So she was, you know, in in, in kind of a, you know, kind of a real sense, a, a woman ahead of herself or ahead of her time. You know, I know that's kind of a cliche. And as historians, you know, we're, we're not really supposed to say that. Um, what struck me about her early on, you know, what what first I think stuck with me um, from my graduate school days till, you know, almost 20 years later, when I finally, you know, sat down to, to try to write the book, was the sense of a woman who was just calling ahead of herself, and you know, and in envisioning and reaching for, um, and you know, and actively demanding and trying to live in a world that was much closer to mine than it was to hers, and you know, I found that just just so compelling. It's visionary. I think she was a, a gripping person, and I find her story gripping um, because of that.
0: Right. She had some really, really progressive stances. And, you know, you mentioned a few, you know, feminism. And she was also, I think, a, a socialist. She called herself a socialist, right? Yes. And absolutely. she was for reproductive rights. Yes, very much so. Why was she branded, and I want to go through the historical arc of her life a bit later, but why was she branded the most dangerous woman in America? Well, I you know, most of those claims
1: about her came in her most radical or revolutionary period. After the Russian Revolution in 1917, she and her brother, Max Eastman, Uh, much better known than she is, a radical writer and editor of The Masses magazine. The two of them together uh, published The Liberator magazine, which they started in 1918, um, shortly after the Russian Revolution, and it was called the Journal of Revolutionary Progress. And it became very quickly the kind of center of reporting and information about revolutionary movements worldwide. In connection with that period in her politics, um, which I can explain to you a little bit how she kind of evolved into that radicalism from her more progressive earlier activism. You know, in connection with that, she took very forthright, very bold, very outspoken stances in favor of the Bolsheviks and herself traveled to communist Hungary. And uh, she was the first American reporter to do that um, and reported very enthusiastically, at least initially, about her hopes that a similar uh, revolution would come to the United States and would indeed sweep the world, would become a global revolution. Revolutionary movement, and of course, this—you know—this kind of radicalism. She was not alone in it, uh, particularly on the left uh, after the Russian Revolution. Many of her colleagues from a number of different movements also celebrated revolution. However, um, you know, it still was that was not a mainstream view. You know, even on the left, it was not a mainstream view; it was a radical view, and um, it was very threatening to people, especially in the the body of a woman and the voice of someone who was so unafraid to speak about it. And the voice of someone who um, had such stature in more mainstream political movements and more mainstream political venues. Um, that, you know, was, it was very threatening to power structures both economically and politically. Um, and so it was at that time, like many other radicals, she became labeled as this very dangerous woman, as kind of an, as an enemy within.
0: All right. Well, speaking of her brother Max, right, who was much, you know, more well known than she was, you know, she had some really interesting family dynamics growing up, right? Yes. (laughs) One of her brothers died when he was very young. Was he seven years old? Is that right? Uh, Yes. Yes. Her brother Morgan. um, And he died of scarlet fever, which Crystal Eastman
1: also had, um, although she survived it, obviously. But Morgan's death affected the family and particularly affected her mother, whom Crystal absolutely worshipped and and was extraordinarily close to, Um, and, you know, kind of changed the family dynamic in a a number of important ways. But one of the, you know, the, the outcomes of this for Crystal and Max Eastman was... Um, You know, an an incredibly tight bonding with their mother, Crystal and Max and Annis Ford Eastman, their mother, formed the kind of a core of the family unit, very close and, you know, had a kind of attachment and a kind of language for each other and a kind of communication with each other that bordered on uh, romantic attachments. Um, And the kind of, you know, romantic language that you find in Crystal's letters with her mother, in Crystal's letters later with her brother, Max, and in some of the letters between Annis and Max as well, you know, really you know, carries a, a, a very unusual emotional charge. Um, but they were they were seriously bonded together to the exclusion of some of the other members of the family. You know, at the core of a family where Crystal's father, Sam Eastman, was, you know, very much on the the margins and in fact was kind of cast out of the, the house in many ways by Crystal's mother. He, you know, he uh, was banished from her bed after Max was born and over the years ended up, you know, sort of camping out And living literally living, you know, outside the house in their summer home, their summer cottage upstate New York. But so her father um, and also her older brother Anstice, later called Ford Eastman, also was you know kind of on the outs in the family. Um, And so there were a lot of of charged and difficult dynamics within the family caused by this central character of her mother, whom she worshipped, and the ways that she constructed a very tight inner loving triangle between herself, her daughter, her only daughter, and her youngest son, Max.
0: Well, her father and I want to get back to her mother in in a, in a minute because her mother is a really really interesting character. But Incredible. her father, they they both are very supportive of Crystal's early you know ideas about feminism. Like even when she was a young girl, she would insist on the boys and the girls in the house or the girl she was the only only daughter Correct. you know having an equal amount of chores, right? Which is very kind of I think progressive during that time. You know during the late you know nineteenth century, yeah. But her mother, her mother, and I just want to talk about this a bit because you mentioned that there was kind of this romantic Romantic overtone between, you know, within that family dynamic. And I was reading through some of the letters in the book, you recall some letters and some diaries. And I was just curious if that was unusual for the time. I mean, her mother would write things like, You are my life, and no one has ever loved me as you do. I mean, did Crystal ever express that as a burden, or did she see it as problematic, or was that just kind of I don't know, all she understood relationship should be. I think that she, in her life, um, she never
1: expressed any problem with it. In fact, she adored her mother. The final piece of writing um, that she ever published, her only autobiographical piece of writing, was called Mother Worship. It was actually her only autobiographical piece of writing became a kind of biographical piece of writing about her mother. Um, and so she had, you know, an incredible sense of attachment, almost a blurring or a merger um, with her mother's life in many ways. Nevertheless, I think in in, in reading her life and in, in studying her life, that relationship with her mother did, you know, cause her to, to sort of form ideas and form a kind of emotional life that made it hard for her to work with precisely the other women with whom she was often working in many of the social movements, particularly feminism, obviously. But um, also, the, you know, many of her colleagues in, in various progressive causes were, you know, kind of senior important women, Jane Addams, Florence Kelly, Lillian Wald, I mean, very important um, progressive activist, innovative women. And she had difficulty uh, often um, with them. She had difficulty with boundaries. She had um, difficulty with attachments, with loyalties. Early in her life, when she first met Florence Kelly, um, she was working on the the, uh, Pittsburgh survey and starting to do the work that led to her work on workers' compensation. And she first met Florence Kelly, and of course, she respected her a lot and wrote a letter to her mother saying how much she respected her and yet compared her unfavorably to her own mother, um, saying that Florence Kelly was just not as lovely lovely as her own mother. Um, And I think in many ways, you know, no woman ever quite measured up to her own mother, um, despite their accomplishments, you know, because of that feeling of emotional charge, and that feeling of complete understanding, and that feeling that her mother gave her that she, Crystal, was the rarest of possible human beings, and who, you know, and who she and only she, Crystal and only Crystal, could accomplish things with her vision that nobody else could. And it you know it helped to make crystal have a difficult time collaborating and you know kind of working with other senior women i think and also in having perspective on her own vision to you know kind of ever
0: compromise or ever reframe her perspective, but she struggles with feelings of inadequacy, right? Because of her mother's, you know, view of her. Is that true? Yes, because of her
1: mother's view of her, and because of her own view of her mother, um, her view that her mother was, you know, was was so exceptional, um, was so perfect, um, was so golden in so many ways, and it, you know, kind of those feelings, those overwhelming feelings of love, blinded her to some of the ways in which her, you know, her mother put undue pressure on her, the ways that her mother actually divided. Divided the family that meant so much to her to keep together. Um, you know, kind of banished her brother and her father to the outer reaches, you know, to a kind of darker, colder part of the universe. And, you know, the ways in which her mother depended on her um, to kind of rescue her and bring her out of. Her mother struggled with um, I believe manic depression and um, she depended on Crystal and told Crystal she was depending on her to pull her out of her depressive episodes. And often said that Crystal and only Crystal had the power to do it, to save her, to rescue her, to save her life. And, you know, these pressures, uh, even though Crystal never, to my knowledge, you know, acknowledged them in any letter and any extant piece of writing, they had to have weighed on her. And certainly in, in reading some of her interactions and comments about other women in her life and knowing the ways that she worked effectively with people and the times when she didn't, I think there were ramifications from that relationship that even Crystal herself did not recognize.
0: Right. Well, so she went off to college, right, which is where she I think she first was introduced to socialism. I think it was at Columbia. Uh, Actually, she called herself a socialist for the first time at Vassar College as an undergraduate. (laughs) Yes. How did that inform her early ideas that led to this work in in advocacy? Um, Which is kind of I mean, because her family was rather religious. Right. So it seems like a departure. It doesn't seem to go in the same direction for me. So I'm just curious about that. Yes.
1: Um, her family, you know, she was the daughter of two ordained congregational ministers. And certainly her family was religious in the kind of structure of their lives. Um, her mother became the, really the, the family breadwinner and was quite a renowned uh, minister in her time, renowned woman minister in her time. You know, her, her mother became a doubter. Um, became, you know, moved, eventually um, left the congregational faith and moved to Unitarianism and eventually planned before she died to leave the church altogether. You know, partly because of her her manic depression, I think, and her sort of emotional travails, um, she found it difficult to maintain her sense of faith. Um, and partly because she was such a searcher, such a seeker, that a lot of her questions did not seem, seem answered by her religious faith. Furthermore, I think, you know, she struggled with the limitations um, that the faith generally assumed and and placed upon women and, you know, kind of other issues connected to her own life and her own um, experience of her identity.
0: Right, because she talked a lot about the role of the woman in the church and in the family, and she used words like sacrifice pretty often. So she seemed like quite a feminist herself. And I would imagine that that would have informed Crystal to some extent. Absolutely. Um, You know, really, Crystal, Christel's um, socialist perspective,
1: certainly, and definitely her feminism and definitely her anti-militarism came almost directly from her mother. Max Eastman, you know, wrote about the fact that an an anti-war attitude was the, you know, was the family heritage. And what he meant by that was that it it, it came, you know, from their mother's side. Certainly their father also, um, you know, Sam Eastman was was a pacifist and wrote an important pacifist brochure that was published by the American Union Against Militarism, the organization that uh, Crystal was one of the two main anti-war organizations Crystal was involved with and a leader in. So it's not like he didn't hold those views. But, you know, the stronger, you know, sense of inheritance and what really, really shaped her politics and her, you know, her attitude toward the world was the impact and the input um, from her mother.
0: So she graduates from college, and she is looking for a job. And so I think she applies initially to a law firm, a position that she didn't get. And she ended up taking her first job with something that kind of changed the trajectory of her professional and her life and activism, right? She was hired to catalog and report on workplace injuries, and, and I just want to say that this was at the height, yes. I believe, of the Industrial Revolution, where, you know, there were almost no worker protection laws and, you know, almost no child labor laws at this point, right? Correct.
1: Yes. They, you know, that was all of that labor legislation was sort of in the process of being formed. And many of the activists that she lived and worked with, beginning in law school at NYU when she lived at the Greenwich House Settlement, and, you know, certainly extending through her work on workplace accidents and, and workers' compensation, you know, where there were waves of labor Legislation that various organizations and groups and activists were trying to get uh, implemented and put into place. But yes, she Crystal Eastman always wanted to practice law, even you know to the very end of her life. I would say the you know the last um, numbers of years uh, when she was uh, mainly a, a working mother, less so. But all the way up through her anti-war activism and even into her years with the Liberator magazine, she you know, wanted to be a lawyer. She believed in the courts. She saw a lot of of hope in the courts. And she was always trying to test the principles of America often through the courts. However, you know, in in the early 20th century, the legal profession, you know, resisted the entrance of women more so than many other professions, you know, even, you know, even medicine. You know, the legal profession was just not amenable and she was not able to find a job. She graduated second in her class from NYU Law School, one of the, you know, kind of first Real incubators of women in the law at the time, and she could not find a job. She tried and tried and tried. She had, you know, even after she had sat on this uh, commission in New York State that where she, you know, all but drafted the first serious workers compensation law in the United States, even after that, she could not get a job practicing law. But going back to when she first graduated from law school, she had to have a job. She did not come from money. She, um, you know, worked her way through all three of her degrees, um, through her Vassar BA, her MA in political economy, basically in sociology at Columbia, and her law degree at NYU. Um, And upon graduation, she had to have a job to support herself. And when she could not, you know, initially find something in law, she took a job with her friend, uh, Paul Kellogg, someone she'd met through Greenwich House um, and met through Columbia, who was starting the Pittsburgh Survey, which was a, you know, a huge, it turned out to be a, a huge and groundbreaking social science project, looking at the city of Pittsburgh, then really the industrial capital of the United States, and examining, you know, kind of in a multifaceted way, all these aspects of working class life. And Eastman was assigned to do, um, industri- to look at industrial accidents, which, as you say, was a, you know, kind of a rising social problem or rising to in the United States, because many other countries in the world were responding to workplace accidents with legislation. In the United States, there were, you know, legal obstacles to doing so. Mainly, uh, you know, a legal a legal obstacle that her the legislation that she helped to draft and that New York State introduced bumped into later, which was the idea that essentially a corporation, you know, kind of owned the labor of its employees. And the state did not you know have the authority to intervene in that private labor contract and you know the struggle for workers compensation in New York and elsewhere in the country was to gain the standing the legal standing and to write the law in such a way as it could withstand constitutional challenges to make workers compensation mandatory for companies and to spread out liability essentially to have what she proposed was that you know by all rights uh, industrial work is dangerous (laughs) for everybody and so by all rights those risks that everyday risks of doing work in an industrializing economy um, should be shared by the businesses by the workers and by the consumers as the law was established and as things were being practiced when she you know sort of took to this work um, the um, employees who could be injured or, or killed on the job you know got next to nothing Employers were really not responsible for, for those accidents um, and for those losses unless, you know, a, a worker could prove that essentially there was negligence on the part of the employer and furthermore could prove that no other worker involved had any any responsibility for the accident that occurred and so there were a lot of obstacles to you know a worker many of them immigrants uneducated who even if they might have had the conditions to allow them to sue their employers for support after they were injured probably wouldn't have had the the clout and the knowledge and the ability
0: Right? to seek legal representation and to enter the legal system. And you're right. It, this, really, this really touched her based on a lot of her writing about this at the time. I mean, she was writing the report, which is what she was hired for. She would say things like, you know, the families and the widows who were left behind they weren't really interested in compensation. They were interested in safety. And she wrote about, you know, women dying in factory fires and children. And a lot of the immigrants, which you mentioned, some of them were, were, were young. They were under, you know, what we consider underage workers today. Absolutely, absolutely. Some of the
1: boys, she called them men, but they were really boys um, who were working in the, you know, ma- um, running this enormous, dangerous machinery in, in industrial factories. You know, it could be 14, 15. She related to them as children, you know, you know, from an, from a maternal point of view, but also, you know, related to the loss to families. In these days, when a, a laborer died, he was generally the only wage earner in the family, or certainly the main wage earner in the family, and the wife and children would be left absolutely destitute um, and with, you know, little or no prospects. And so she really saw this as a holistic problem, and and just responded with her heart as well her head to the the absolute injustice of, of these huge growing profitable companies exploiting their workers like this and when, when they took their limbs you know when they took their bodies bearing next to no or no responsibility for helping those men and their families to survive
0: she wasn't the only person obviously who was working on this issue right but the thing about it is that she wrote about it with a level of empathy that you didn't find with other people who were working on this from say like a legislative perspective.
1: Yes. To my read she brought real heart and as you say real empathy to these questions and Um, One of the things that I really enjoyed about reading her important book that preceded her work, you know, her appointment to this commission to work on workers' compensation, it was called Work Accidents and the Law. And this was the, you know, the published version of the report that she wrote for Paul Kellogg and the Pittsburgh Survey. And she, you know, not only went into these factories, went into these mines, interviewed these workers um, and, you know, and saw their homes, um, you know, and really talked to them about their lives. But after workers were injured, she also went and talked to the families. She, you know, she talked to the wives, she looked at their lives, she, she wrote about the ways that these families, you know, tried to survive after the loss of their breadwinner, right? And their their father and their husband and wrote about the, the heroism of it. And, you know, really gave a, a full round kind of heartfelt picture of the tragedy and the abuse that these families were suffering at the hands of these corporations that basically, you know, could could chew up and spit out workers, their lives, their bodies, their families with no responsibility, you know, she wrote about sometimes, the, you know, a small adjustment to, you know, something on a, on a, on a factory floor and a piece of machinery, you know, wasn't well known. And for, for a, you know, a, a negligible cost could have been repaired, but instead it maimed a worker, you know, or killed one and then another and then another.
0: Thank you so much for listening. That concludes part one of my interview with Amy Aronson about the life of Crystal Eastman. Part two will air next week. And we'll discuss the latter part of Eastman's life, including how she came to co-found the ACLU. The Electorate is independently created and produced by me, Jen Taylor-Skinner. And of course, I'm the host. But I also do all of the editing, the audio, and the graphics. You name it, it's on my plate. So if you enjoyed this episode of the Electorate, please help the Electorate grow by subscribing. Just hit the subscribe button on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Also, leave a review for the Electorate on iTunes. Lastly, one final way to help the Electorate is by following the Electorate on social media. That's at Electorate on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening and until next time, keep up the good fight.